This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 18th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The NIFLA case at the Supreme Court this term was supposed to be about state regulation of so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Robert McNamara of the Institute for Justice discussed the case in the latest edition of the Cato Institute's Supreme Court Review. He says it will ultimately be remembered for eliminating once and for all the dubious First Amendment loophole known as professional speech. We spoke during yesterday's Constitution Day festivities. You cast the NIFLA case, and and I'll ask you to describe what that case was all about, as sort of a sleeper blockbuster of this Supreme Court term. What was the case about, and and why do you think it will have such a big impact? So NIFLA v. Becerra is a case about disclosure requirements California was imposing on what are called crisis pregnancy centers, which are these places that provide certain services to pregnant women uh, and that are operated by pro-life organizations explicitly to steer women away from abortions. They don't provide abortions. They don't provide referrals to abortions. And they're controversial because people who are opposed to them say that they are frequently deceiving women. They're tricking them into thinking they're full-service medical clinics uh, and tricking them out of uh, actually seeking abortion services they would otherwise seek. And so states like California have imposed certain requirements on them uh, about uh, disclosures they have to make to the public. And here, California said that centers that were licensed by the state had to have large signs informing all of their customers uh, of how they could go about getting a state-subsidized abortion, which the centers objected to on First Amendment grounds as compelled speech. Uh, but all of that is, I think, beside the point of why I think this is a hugely important case just as a matter of First Amendment law, because Nifla v. Becerra, in deciding the case, had to deal with what's called the professional speech doctrine. And the professional speech doctrine is a rule of law under which, for the past 30 years, lower federal courts have accorded less free speech protection to the speech of so-called professionals, of people who are speaking to a client, advising a client. Some circuits have said that that was unprotected by the First Amendment in certain situations. Other circuits have said that's protected by the First Amendment, but it's entitled to less scrutiny than normal people's speech. Uh, and that is a doctrine that has... Uh, it's really taken root uh, in the federal courts. No federal appellate court had rejected the doctrine. Uh, and that's really the issue that's at the heart of the NIFLA case, is whether the speech of professionals, of people who are working in licensed occupations, is going to be treated as protected speech under the First Amendment, or whether it's going to be something less than that. Now, uh, if I understand correctly, the ruling in the case basically did away with this distinction that courts have at times upheld, the idea that professional speech is somehow a category that is special with respect to the First Amendment. Absolutely. The court said that, as it has said repeatedly, uh, that lower courts don't have license to create new exceptions to the First Amendment, uh, that the First Amendment presumptively protects all speech unless someone can show there's a long history of particular speech being outside the protection of the First Amendment, and that there's no such exception for professionals. And that holding is going to have sweeping effects for people's speech 
all across the country because the professional speech doctrine is both wrong and dangerous. It's wrong because there's absolutely no reason to accord less protection to people just because they have expertise. The, the rationale the Ninth Circuit, for example, used in articulating the professional speech doctrine is that professionals have real expertise that lay people don't have access to, and so lay people are going to really rely on what these professionals say to them. Uh, but that's really just saying that speech should be less protected because it might be too persuasive. That when these people talk, people will listen to them, and so the government needs to have more power to restrict their speech. But that seems exactly backwards to me. Uh, we shouldn't be restricting speech because it's persuasive. The whole point of the First Amendment is to protect persuasive speech, to protect our ability to, to persuade each other, to change each other's minds, to give each other advice that other people will actually act on. And... It's dangerous in that it's very difficult to define who a professional is that would get less protection in the first place. Uh, when people talk about professionals, they frequently mean, you know, doctors, lawyers, and architects. But lower courts had applied the professional speech doctrine all across the board. We at the Institute for Justice have seen the professional speech doctrine invoked uh, to justify regulations of tour guides who tell stories about history for a living. Uh, we have seen it invoked by the state of Kentucky in an effort to silence uh, an actual syndicated newspaper advice columnist. Uh, a guy named John Roseman writes a syndicated column uh, where he gives parenting advice in a Dear Abby question and answer style, and the state of Kentucky sent him a cease and desist letter ordering him to stop practicing psychology without a license in the state of Kentucky. Uh, all he had done in the state of Kentucky was literally publish a, a newspaper article, and the state said that was professional speech because he was giving the letter writer individualized advice. In, in the Fourth Circuit, which is on the East Coast, uh, the court held that the professional speech doctrine applied to fortune tellers. <laughs> fortune tellers do give people, I suppose, individualized advice, but if a fortune teller is a professional, everyone is a professional. And the Supreme Court has done away with this once and for all in a way that's going to have real implications for for exactly the kind of speech we should be protecting. I mean, I, I think one of the best ways to understand the professional speech doctrine is a case IJ litigated uh, a couple years ago out of Texas on behalf of Dr. Ron Hines. Dr. Hines is a veterinarian. He's licensed by the state of Texas, and he is physically disabled. And one way he kind of continued to use his expertise and continued... Uh, doing useful work is through the internet. Uh, he set up a website and he would send people emails about their pets. They would email in questions and Dr. Hines would send them responses. And he heard from people all over the world, frequently people who couldn't get to a veterinarian. He emailed with a worker on an oil rig, giving him advice about his dog, uh, and really providing a useful service, just emailing people his thoughts uh, and saying, that sounds serious, you need to go see a veterinarian in person, or uh, that actually is, is a common symptom, just simple advice. Uh, and the Texas Veterinary Board uh, ordered him to cease and desist, actually fined him for sending these emails without having physically examined the animals. But they were just emails. Dr. Hines wasn't prescribing medication. He wasn't doing surgery. And the state of Texas's position is that it would be perfectly legal for you or me to send someone an email about their dog, but that Dr. Hines, because he was a professional engaged in professional speech, had no First Amendment right to send people emails giving them advice about their dogs. And that's just insane. We should want people like Dr. Hines to speak more, not less. And that's 
exactly that that's what the doctrine was doing and that's exactly the doctrine the supreme court wiped off the books this past term uh, in a way that's going to have huge implications all right so let's talk about some of the implications but uh first how have courts drawn that line between professional speech and non-professional speech They've struggled with it enormously. There is really no coherent line that emerged in the lower courts telling us what was professional speech and what wasn't professional speech. Uh, I mentioned the Fourth Circuit has said that fortune tellers were engaged in professional speech. Uh, the, the doctrine itself goes back to an opinion from the 1980s by Justice White. And Justice White said that professional speech is when uh, a professional with expertise gives individualized advice to his client and takes that client's affairs into his own hands. Uh, and courts have really struggled with what that means, in part because I think it it begins from a somewhat incoherent premise, which is that speech becomes less protected as it becomes more individualized. But I'm not sure that makes any sense. It would, under that rule, it would mean it's perfectly legal to write a book and it's perfectly legal to uh, go give a book talk, but you lose First Amendment protections during the question and answer session if the questions get too specific. I don't think that's anyone's intuitive understanding of how the First Amendment works. And I don't think anyone's understanding of whether the conversation you and I are having right now is protected hinges on the fact that you plan to put this on the internet. Uh, if we were just having this conversation on the telephone, we would have the same First Amendment rights to talk to each other as we do to have this conversation in the context of a podcast. So with respect Respect to uh, courts that have tried to draw this line, and the Supreme Court that has now sort of washed away this 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 sort of dubious distinction. What does that mean for state and federal efforts to effectively license practitioners whose main job is to provide uh, this these educated opinions to people? I think it makes it extremely difficult for local, state, and federal authorities to require a license just to talk. Now, that doesn't mean you can't require occupational licenses. A lot of occupations involve mostly conduct. But increasingly, in the era of the internet, people earn their living by communicating, by selling their advice, by selling their expertise. And that activity is now firmly under the umbrella of the First Amendment, which is going to make it much more difficult for regulators to crack down on it uh, in a way that I think we should all celebrate. Uh, Everyone listening to this, you know, this is distributed via the internet, so if you have access to the internet, you have access to a wealth of information that would have been unavailable 30 years ago without hiring a professional. You have information about the value of your house. You can get information about how to fill out simple legal forms. You can get basic financial advice. Uh, all of this is just information, but information that used to be the exclusive province of a licensed profession. And licensed professions don't particularly like it when internet startups start horning in on their turf. And there have been a number of cases and a number of instances of uh, regulators trying to crack down on uh, the distribution of what they consider their own proprietary information, not their proprietary information in the sense that it's private information about them, but public information that they feel they own. Uh, the, the latest example of this is a case the Institute for Justice is litigating in Mississippi. There's a Mississippi startup called uh, Visiplat, and Visiplat essentially takes legal descriptions of 
property, what are called meets and bounds descriptions, and it uses computer software to overlay them onto satellite photographs of the area. Uh, that sounds like just kind of a fun hobby, but it turns out to be super useful for small banks. Banks write loans on pieces of property, and what the software does is it lets a bank loan officer very quickly and easily look at a physical representation of the piece of property he's writing a loan on. It's been very useful for banks, but the state of Mississippi uh, takes the position that this company is engaged in illegal, unlicensed surveying. Um, and the surveyors uh, don't like the idea that this information is being handed out without their imprimatur. And so the state of Mississippi has sued, uh, not only asking for a court order stopping the company from using the software to convey this information, but actually an order for them to disgorge every dime they have earned in the state of Mississippi, notwithstanding the fact that they have received literally no customer complaints and that all the banks they work with want to continue receiving this information. Before NIFLA, this would have been a, a situation where we were arguing about professional speech. Is this kind of information the exclusive province of professional surveyors? After NIFLA, that argument isn't available to the state, and so that means that not only this startup, but the next startup that hasn't even been imagined yet is going to be able to convey this information with the full protection of the First Amendment behind it to stand between it and protectionist regulators who don't like their turf being disrupted. You said that this will not impact many state efforts to license certain occupations, uh, but certainly state boards of licensure uh, will have to incorporate this ruling somehow. What advice would you have for them uh, as they try to you know, decide whether or not the licenses they're issuing are actually valid under the First Amendment? So I think this has a huge impact on state licensure of occupations. Uh, what it probably won't do is wholesale strike down a number of licenses on their face. Uh, you're not going to see courts saying that it's unconstitutional to license doctors under the First Amendment. Uh, but what you will see is courts taking much more seriously the boundaries of those occupations. Uh, it's one thing to say uh, the government is going to require a license to be a lawyer. Uh, and to practice law and to appear in federal court. Uh, but it's another thing to say that the government is going to prosecute someone for the unauthorized practice of law for engaging in pure speech. Uh, someone who isn't a licensed attorney can't walk into court on behalf of someone else because a court isn't a public forum. Uh, you don't necessarily have a First Amendment right to stand up in court and say whatever you feel like. Uh, but you do have a First Amendment right to talk to your fellow citizens and to give your fellow citizens advice. And so the boundaries of those occupations are really where this ruling is going to have an impact. And that's important because the boundaries of these licensing regulations are really where a lot of the action is. Uh, it's not that uh, the the argument is we should de-license doctors and let everyone perform brain surgery. Uh, the difficulty is that the scope of practice of the number of things that are restricted to doctors or to any other licensed occupation tends to grow. It tends to expand. And what this does is set up the First Amendment as a bulwark around all of these licensing regulations to stop them from growing into the realm of pure speech, which time and again we saw at the Institute for Justice was exactly what they were trying to do. Uh, for agencies and for courts in the future, it seems that the distinction now is not professional versus non-professional. It's the degree to which a job uh, that might otherwise be regulable by the government is primarily conduct or speech. Is that right? That's exactly right. That 
government regulators will have to be much more cognizant of whether they're trying to punish someone for pure speech. And probably the best example of this is a case we have ongoing out in Oregon right now uh, against the State Board of Examiners in Engineering. Now, engineers are people who put stamps on plans to build a bridge that certifies that the bridge won't fall down. Uh, and it, a lot of states make it illegal to build certain projects without an engineer's stamp on it. And so there's no question that the state has an interest in regulating who gets to stamp those plans, how the bridges can be built. No one wants a bridge to fall down. Uh, but what was going on in Oregon is we're representing a guy named Mats Jarlstrom. And Mats decided uh, he's a Swedish engineer by training, and his wife got a red light traffic camera ticket. And he got very interested in traffic light timing and in how red light cameras work. And he looked up the original mathematical paper on which traffic light timing is based. Uh, and he found out it was wrong through complicated calculus that I will not pretend to understand. Uh, Mats argued that, uh, in fact, the timing was wrong because it didn't account for people changing speed in order to turn. And so he wrote to everybody he could think of. He wrote to the guy who wrote the original paper. And that guy said, that was a good point. Matt's might well be right. Uh, it's a good idea. Uh, he wrote to his town engineer and said, you're timing your traffic lights wrong. And that guy ignored him. And he wrote to the state board of examiners and engineering and said, hey, uh, you know, I'm a Swedish engineer by training and I've done this math and I think my town is timing these wrong, but the town engineer won't talk to me. And the state board wrote back and said, well, we can't help you with your town engineer, uh, but what we can do is notice that you are engaged in a public critique of traffic engineering without a license. And they fined him $500, essentially for engaging in math without their permission. Activity like that has to be reined in in, in the wake of NIFLA, uh, because their argument was, Matt's is engaged in professional speech. If he is to talk to a particular client, that would be professional speech, and he cannot talk to someone about math without permission. Uh, that argument has been exploded by this, but I think what you're going to see with more robust First Amendment scrutiny of occupational licensing is not necessarily fewer licenses, but in fewer outrageous enforcement actions like we're seeing against Mats Jarlstrom, that regulators, at least if they know what's good for them, are going to pause and give a little more thought before they start throwing around $500 fines for unauthorized math. Robert McNamara is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. His article on the NIFLA Supreme Court case appears in the newest Cato Supreme Court Review, available now. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>